I am, uh, some of you know this about me and some of you may not, but I have a bit of a reputation as a pessimist. Uh, some might even say that I am a cynic. That's not how I see myself, however. I call myself a realist. You see, I, I don't wish that everything would go wrong. I just presume that most everything will. You know what I'm saying? Uh, a few days ago, when I looked at my long-range forecast, we've talked about my obsession with the weather app, and I looked at the long-range forecast, and I said, yep, Sunday, going to rain. And it wavered when it was going to start and when it was going to end, but I was firm in my realistic viewpoint that we were going to be in the rain today. I don't know, it's just the way that uh, my brain works. Rather than hope for the ideal, I traffic in the real in the reality of life. Uh, let me give you an example of that that maybe you can relate to. Let's just picture the ideal fall family apple picking day. Okay, you plan it all week. And Saturday dawns. It's crystal clear. It's 70 degrees and sunny. There is a light breeze. The kids bounce out of bed, and they are excited to go pick apples. You leave right on time. You get there, and miraculously, there's hardly anyone else there. And the apples are so You walk in, and the proprietor says, Folks, I just want you to know that everything is 75% off today. You go out into the orchard, you fill your bags and baskets just quickly. The kids are running around in the daisies laughing and playing together. You get back to the hut and you get some warm apple crisp with some ice cream. You load your stuff into the van and on the way home the kids say, Mom, Dad, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Picture a real family fall apple-picking day. For some reason, at the end of September, it's 85 degrees and 98% humidity. The kids wouldn't go to bed last night. They get up. They're already fighting with each other. Nobody wants to get in the van. You have things that you need to do. You go outside. The van has a flat tire. You finally get to the orchard at 3 o'clock. You have to park a half a mile away because everybody in the whole county is there. You grab your bags, you go out into the orchard, all the good stuff is gone. By the time you get back to the hut and you pay twice as much as you thought you were going to for everything, the proprietor informs you that there is no apple crisp left. And so you get in the van while the kids are screaming at each other, you're fighting with your spouse, and you drive through the McDonald's drive-thru and get a hot apple pie, two for a buck. <laughs> That's real fall family apple picking day. What happened? The reality didn't live up to the ideal. We've all experienced that in our families, at our jobs. There's always a gap between the ideal and the real. And what I want us to think about for a few minutes this morning is that is also true in the family of God. In this church family, Mossbrook Church, 
There's a gap between the ideal and the real. Ideally, we would all get along perfectly. We would all be completely selfless. We would always get along. We would always love each other. But realistically, that's not the case. Why is that? Well, yeah, we're a family, but guess what we're a family of? We're a family of sinners, selfish sinners. Yes, we are saved, the majority of us, perhaps even everyone here today, but we're still sinners. And by the way, that has always been the case in the church. All the way back to the church in Philippi in the first century. This morning we're looking at the book of Philippians. If you're following along with the whole story, this is book number 50 out of 66 as we walk through the whole Bible. And if we were going to get the origin story for the book of Philippians, then we would go to Acts chapter 16. And if you would look into Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas got a divine call to go to Macedonia. Macedonia was a region. It would be like the Holy Spirit telling us, go to the Oxford Hills. It was a region of Macedonia. And in that region, there was a city called Philippi. And Paul and Silas got there, and they went down by the river where there were people gathered, and they found Lydia. And Lydia was someone who who knew about God. She wanted to know more about God, but she wasn't a believer. And so Paul and Silas the gospel with Lydia, and she came to Christ. Now, they didn't know this. Of course, God did, and that's why he directed them to her. Lydia was a very prominent woman in the city of Philippi, and so she facilitated their entry into the city and introduced them to all kinds of people, and people started to get saved, and Paul and Silas went out into the town. It was a young girl in the middle of town. She was a slave girl, and she was demon-possessed, but this demon had given her the ability to tell fortunes. And her masters made a lot of money off this young girl. Paul saw it, realized that she was possessed, and cast the demon out of her. As a result, of course, she lost the ability to tell the future, and her masters were furious. And they grabbed Paul and Silas, and they hauled them to the magistrates, and they demanded that they be arrested. They were arrested, thrown in jail, beaten and chained. And at midnight that night, instead of complaining about their circumstances, they were singing worship songs in the middle of the jail. They were worshiping God and thanking Him for the blessing of being able to be persecuted, to share the name of Christ, and to see people come to Christ. And at that moment, the stroke of midnight, an earthquake happened, and all the jail doors flew open. And the jailer was terrified that everyone had escaped, and so he was about to kill himself. And Paul said, don't do that. We're all still here. And the jailer came and threw himself at their feet and said, sirs, what do I have to do to be saved? He saw in them the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's Acts 16 and 31. And the jailer was saved that night. And out of compassion for Paul and Silas, he took them home to his home from the jail. And he took care of their wounds and and he helped them. And while they were there, Paul and Silas preached the gospel to the jailer's whole family. And they all got saved. And a church was born in Philippi. Well... This is 10 or 12 years later, Paul writes this letter to the church that has now been established, 
It's kind of interesting to think maybe if some of those people were still there, maybe the jailer was an elder now in the church at Philippi. Maybe Lydia was there teaching and leading ladies to Christ. And that young lady that was demon-possessed and telling the future, who was now saved, perhaps she was married with children of her own. We don't know, of course, but 10 or 12 years later, Paul writes this letter. Again, he's in prison, this time he's in Rome, preaching the gospel. He had heard that there were some issues in the family. He had heard that there were some divisions. And in the very first verse of Philippians, Paul calls himself and Timothy servants, literally slaves of Jesus Christ. So Paul writes the letter to them and he says, Timothy and I, slaves of Jesus Christ, greet you. Now I think Paul did this for a reason. You see, the people who were in Philippi were proud Roman citizens. Macedonia was part of the Roman Empire. They weren't Jews that had been slaves their whole lives. They weren't exiles from another country. They were Roman citizens. And in the Roman Empire, slaves were not even considered human. They were subhuman. And Paul said, Timothy and I are slaves of Jesus. And it had to put into the Philippians' minds this question, why would someone willingly become a slave? Why would you do that? They were wrestling with the concept of serving each other, which is something that we wrestle with on a daily basis. Who wants to always do something that somebody else wants? Who wants to always do, put other, ones, other people first? Why would we do that unless we are compelled But the New Testament church, the body of Christ, this family that we're a part of, this flawed family, the only way this family works is this. A true disciple always puts others ahead of himself. That's the only way it works. Melody read for us a few moments ago those first verses of Philippians chapter 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. I want us to just look at those four verses. And we're going to start by looking at verse 2. We're going to skip verse 1 for a minute, set that aside. But in verse 2, we see the desire that Paul has for the church. There's a very personal challenge here. Paul says, complete my joy. When I read that, this week, as I was preparing to share this with you, I thought of something that we say in our family, Melody and Gavin and I. We have a little saying. If we particularly like something or enjoy it, we say, that makes me happy. I think Melody came up with it, first of all. Gavin started to adopt it, and now I say it too. That makes me happy. Now, there could be a variety of things that make me happy. Now, something that makes me happy is a big bowl of homemade heavenly hash from Fielder's Choice. 
If you ever want to celebrate my birthday, <clears throat> which is July 7th, it just passed, I take late gifts. <laughs> Heavenly hash from Fielder's Choice is an excellent option. That makes me happy. Could be a plate of homemade French fries. I don't know why I'm thinking about food, but <laughs> when we get together with our family and friends and we enjoy each other's company, skimming across the lake last night, watching the sunset, that makes me happy. You know what Paul was saying? He's saying, make me happy. Make me happy. Paul knew these people. And he's showing his loving concern for them. Make me happy by being unified. Paul's desire for them is unity. We see that. He says, be of the same mind. That's unity of thought. The body needs to share a way of thinking. That's what the word mind means. It means mindset or worldview. Your mindset and worldview is it's the way that your brain works in here that results in appropriate behavior for everyone to see. That's your worldview. That's your mindset. And our thoughts, our worldview needs to be the same. Now, I'm looking at you here this morning, and I, you know, see vague shadows and shapes over here from you people, and you guys that are at home, I can't see you at all, but I know you. And we're all very, very different. But Paul says we have to have the same we have to have the same way of thinking. Now, how in the world are 200 people from different walks of life and different life experiences and different abilities and different ideas about things? How are we going to have the same mindset? Any idea? All of our hearts need to be informed by the same source. I'm giving you hints. Any idea what that might be? The truth of God's Word. The truth of God's Word has to inform our hearts and minds. That's why we do this. That's why we come together and we teach God's Word. And we encourage you in your groups to take the Bible and read it together and talk about it. That's why we encourage radical mentorship that's why we challenge you to take your Bible at home every day and read it. Why? Because I have the same one at my home. And when I read it at my home and you read it at your home and then we come together and we talk about it, guess what? It changes the way that we think. And that's what Paul's saying here. We need to have the same mind. Also, he says we need to have the same love. So not only unity of thought, but unity of love. This love always desires the best for the one being loved. There's all kinds of love in the world. Did you know that? There's all kinds of love. We need to all have the same love. There's very selfish kinds of love out there, isn't there? There are perverted kinds of love. Paul says you and I, we all need to have the same love. This word love wants the best for the one being loved. That's definitely not happening in our world. The love that is prevalent in our world wants the best for self. This is what I want. This kind of love wants what's best for others. 
And then he says you need to be of full accord. That's unity of purpose. Why are we here? What are we doing? You may ask yourself that as you sit here in the pouring rain for the third week out of four after I opened my big yapper and talked about 32 weeks in a row with no rain, right? What are we doing here? It would be so easy for us to be doing something else. And my friends, much to my chagrin, and I hope yours too, there are churches all over our country that over the past 18 months have just said, you know what? We're not doing this anymore. Let's just close the doors. This isn't worth it. What are we doing here? Why are we expending all of this effort and energy? Well, what is the whole story? The whole story is that God purposed to glorify himself and display his grace by redeeming people. That's the story. So how does that affect us? We need to be united in our mindset that shows people God's love and love them the way that he does. And that needs to be the most important thing in our lives. That's why we're here, so that we can be a part of the whole story. The whole story is still going on, by the way. It's still happening. And that's why we're here. We need to be on the same page. If we're not on the same page with each other, we need to get on the same page and be united in thought and love and purpose. That was Paul's desire for the Philippians. That is God's desire for us is that we would walk in unity. You may be sitting there and saying, all right, sounds good. Let's do it. Good talk, Mike. Appreciate it. Get all pumped up. Let's go. It's raining. Let's go home. But we can't stop here. That's just what we're supposed to be doing. We need to talk about how we do it. You see, we have to be careful to understand that being together like this is not just about a pep talk. It's not to get us fired up about the things that we already know are right. Because that flames out, doesn't it? We can be excited about something. We can be encouraged or challenged about something. And before we even get out of the driveway, we've already forgotten it because we're thinking about all the other things that we have to do today. And anyway, you don't have to live life very long before you know that life is not about mountaintops. Those only happen once in a while. Life is about valleys. Life is about the flatlands. Life is about that song that we sing once in a while that talks about the everyday and the mundane. It's about doing the hard work. And for us as Christ followers, it's all well and good for us to stand here and say, yep, that's what we got to do. Got to be united. Got to be together. Want everybody to know that God loves them. But now we have to go about the reality of living in the sinful, painful world. We have to see the road to get there. And so we ask, what do we have to do? And that's verses 3 and 4. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look, not, or look each of you not to only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. 
says, my desire, make me happy by being unified. That's not too bad. That's kind of comfortable. When Curtis was praying this morning, he said, you know, I don't know what he was thinking I was going to say, but whether it's comfortable and easy to hear or whether it steps on our toes. Paul is being very comfortable. He's theorizing here, hey, we need to be unified. Get it together, people. And he goes from that to meddling. He goes from that and gets very, very personal. We like the idea, but are we willing to do the work? And he uses three terms here to direct our behavior. He says first, first term is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is a deep-seated desire for personal preeminence. It's interpersonal competitiveness that comes from self-centeredness. Did you get that? I don't really want to repeat it because I live it every day, but I'll repeat it for you folks. It's interpersonal competitiveness that comes from self-centeredness. It's rivalry. It's a desire to win. Why is it that when I sit down with my wife, whom I have loved for 30 plus years and would do anything for, why is it that when we sit down to play a card game, I want to win so bad I can taste it? So much so that if it's not going my way, I start to <clears throat> get a little, you know, miffed. And then she calls me on it, which makes me even madder because I know she's right. I have in me this, this internal competitiveness. I remember playing basketball when I was a teenager and getting so ticked off when we lost. And I went to Bible school and I played basketball for three more years and literally, I kid you not, God Almighty was trying to break my stupid, stubborn competitiveness because in three years of competitive basketball, we did not win one game. <laughs> I'm not telling you that to be funny. I'm not trying to exaggerate to make a point. I am serious. In three years, we did not win one game. Why is that? Because in my heart, I have a self-centeredness that results in a rivalry with my fellow humans. And you have one too. It may not come raging out when you're playing sports and games like it does not me, but it comes out somewhere. I'm right and you're wrong. Paul says, nothing within the church can be done that way. Do nothing through selfish ambition. Nothing means not even one thing. I know what you're thinking. I know you're all thinking this. You're thinking, hey, in almost everything, I think, oh, is this what you want to do? Oh, you want to? Yep. No, sure. You, but not on this, because I'm right. This is the best way. Paul says, not even one thing can be done through selfish ambition or conceit. 
The word that's translated conceit in our English Bibles is literally the word vain glory. It just means empty pride. It means the pride we take in ourselves when we think we do something worthy of praise. Look what I've done. You know when your kid comes and, you know, takes a bunch of crayons and makes a mess on a piece of paper and says, Mommy, Mommy, look what I did. That's what we do. We exercise our abilities and we say, look what we did. Somebody praise me. When we're full of ourselves, everything we do results in empty glory. When we are empty of ourselves, everything we do results in God's glory. I have never met anyone who was more empty of themselves than a man named Gordon Astle. I have mentioned Gordon before. It's been years. He was a part of our church in Sherman before we came here years ago. Gordon was about five feet tall. He weighed about 110 pounds. He was somewhere in the murkiness of his 70s when we moved to Sherman in 1993. And I asked someone what Gordon did. Well, he does little things around the church for us, and, and we paid him a little bit every week to do those things. And as we were there for a while, I got to know Gordon and realized he was a very sweet old man. And he, we had a wood furnace in the church to keep it warm. So when the winter, he'd come up very early on Sundays and put a fire on, keep, get everything warmed up in time for church. He did some cleaning. He shoveled the, shoveled the walkways and shoveled the steps. He could hardly stand up straight because he had broken his leg when he was in his 20s in the woods and never went to the doctor. So it healed wrong. Couldn't really walk without a limp. He had one arm that he couldn't live, lift higher than this because he had broken it in the woods doing something. He was very, very quiet. There's no reason that you ever would have noticed Gordon unless you knew him. There's just no reason. He blended into any crowd. At some point along the way, I found out that the check that we gave him every week for hours and hours of work that he did at the church. Every week he would sign it and put it back in the offering. And he and his wife lived in a little house, in two rooms of a little house, probably smaller than this stage. And he drove a 25-year-old car that I swear I have absolutely no idea how it kept running. It was a train wreck. Everybody in town called him Grandpa because he was so loving and so kind and so generous. And every couple of months, he and his wife, who was equally sweet, would grab Melody and I and insist on taking us out for supper and would get righteously angry if we tried to pay. That's empty of self. That's without conceit. How do we fight our natural inclination to selfish ambition and conceit? Well, the third term that Paul uses is humility. 
Humility is a, a lowly mindset. It's modesty, but it's, it's not an inferiority complex because, listen, folks, an inferiority complex is just as self-centered as pride. I'm nobody. I can't do anything. I always screw up. That's not humility. That's selfish inferiority. It's self-centered. Humility is not thinking you're no good. Humility is not thinking about yourself at all. Humility is forgetting about self. And it's regulated by a proper view of God and others. Several years ago, a poll was taken of one million high school students and they asked them one question. How are you at getting along with other people? Below average, average, above average, or exceptional? 60% of the students that were polled thought they were above average. 25% of the kids rated themselves as exceptional in getting along with others. The pollsters thought, well, our problem was we asked high school students, they're immature, they're unaware, they're not very self-aware, so they asked the same question to a million college professors. 63% of college professors rated themselves at above average and getting along with others, and 25% of them rated themselves truly exceptional. This is called the Lake Wobegon effect. Garrison Keillor wrote about a, a fictional town in Minnesota years ago called Lake Wobegon where all the kids were above average. You get it? All the kids were above average. It's statistically impossible, but the average person thinks they're a better person than the average person. We're proud. We think of ourselves better than we are. But that's not what Paul says we should do. He says, count others more significant. Don't look on your own interests, but also the interests of others. If you've been in one of our theology classes, you might have heard me talk about the word another or other in the Greek New Testament. There are two words for other and another, heteros and allos. Heteros means another of a different kind. Allos means another of the same kind. I have a Toyota Camry. I love it. It's a great car. I want another one. I want another one just like that, the same kind. If you have a crappy car, you're probably sitting here thinking, I want another car. In English, we use the same word. But you mean you want another of a different one, different kind. You don't want that same one. When Paul says, think about others... He doesn't say, think about the Allos people in your church, the other people that are the same as you, that are at the same stage of life, who think the way that you do, get along with them. No, he doesn't use that word. Guess what? He uses the word heteros. Think about, get along with, submit yourself to, serve those that are different from you, those you don't get along with, those who don't think the same way that you do. So I put aside my natural tendency to take care of my stuff. I put aside my tendency to make myself the most important. I put others first, even people that are completely unlike me, maybe even disagree with me, 
How in the world do I do that? How is that possible? Well, now we look at verse 1. Paul says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, make me happy. If there are these things... If these things are present in your life, these four things, then it's doable. We can be united. We can have the same mind, the same purpose, the same love. Ask yourself if these things are a part of your life. Paul says, is there any encouragement from Christ? Is Christ speaking into your life? Is there any comfort from love? Have you experienced Christ's love in your life? If there is any participation in the Spirit, are you walking in the Spirit? Two weeks ago, Tim was talking about the book of Galatians. Do you remember that he said at the end, he read that verse from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Are you walking in the Spirit? Then fourthly, Paul says, If there is any affection and sympathy, those words mean literally emotions and feelings. What Paul is saying is this, do you have any compassion for other people? Do you have any mercy? Because Paul says if these things are part of your life, then unity is possible. If Christ is speaking into your life, if you've experienced God's love, if you're walking in the Spirit, if you have compassion and mercy for other people, then you can do it. We can do it. By the way, these things all should be part of every Christ follower's experience. Every Christ follower's life, are they a part of yours? A true disciple always puts others ahead of himself. Is that you? Do you do that? Caring about others and putting them first is hard work, but it's what God calls us to do. And it begs the question, why would we do this? Why would we willingly subordinate our needs And our thoughts and our desires to that of another person, why would we do that? Well, there's only one reason, and it's this. Jesus, the innocent, was condemned, and you, the guilty, were freed. This is the gospel. I read a commentary this week. The guy wrote this in relation to this thought. Though you must admit that you have offended your gracious creator, the very God you have sinned against has absorbed the pain and the punishment that that should be yours. I have a friend that I go out to breakfast with fairly often. Dozens and dozens of times we've been out to breakfast. Sometimes we go out for lunch. Once in a while we've gone out for dinner. And he always pays. Always. The first few times 
he asked me to go out to breakfast, and he paid. And I thought, well, you know. And I said, hey, you know, I'll pay. And he goes, no, I'll do it. And I said, okay, thank you. After a few times, I said, hey, I'll get it today. And he said, nope. No, come on, I'll do it next time. Hey, let me pay. Next time he called me and said, let's go out for breakfast. I said, okay, but only if I pay. He said, yep. Then when we get there, nope. <laughs> Finally, I got a little tired of it. I really wanted to pay. I thought it was only fair. And so when I got to the place where we were having breakfast, I found the waitress before I went to the table and I said, look, do not give him the bill. Give it to me because I'm going to pay. You know what she said? <laughs> he knew you were going to say that. He told me before you got here not to give it to you. And I have, I'm, I, there's no end of the story. I mean, I still have yet to pay for any time that we've ever been out together. Jesus Christ, if you will forgive the vernacular, picked up your tab, not once, not five times, but hundreds of times, thousands of times, every time you have sinned, every time you have lied, every time you've gotten angry, every time you've been lustful, fearful, cruel, Jesus picked up your tab. Do you know why that matters? Here's the crux of everything we're talking about. You know why it matters that Jesus has paid for all of this? Because it leaves you free to pay the debt for others. You know what I learned about my friend, and I'm still irritated at him that he won't let me pay, but you know what I figured out? Hey, you know what? I can take somebody else out to breakfast and pay for them because he paid for me. You can care for other people because Christ cared for you. So I ask you this question, who do you need to serve? Whose needs do you need to put before your own? Whose interests? Guys, is it your wife? Are you struggling with that? Yeah, I love her. Yeah, I'd die for her. I don't care if you die for her. Will you live for her? Every day, ladies, is it your husband? Is it somebody that you work with and serve with and volunteer with here at church? Is it someone in your small group, team leaders? Is it the people that you need? Who do you need to serve? This is the everyday and the mundane. Rubbing shoulders with each other, loving each other, caring for each other, forgiving people when they offend you, forgetting it when they say the wrong thing. This is the reality of life in the body of Christ. And the question it begs is this, can we be one? That's what we're called to be. Can we be one? 